There is a longing within all of us for freedom, to get out in the open, away from the noise and fears and burdens that hold us captive, to breathe deeply and hear clearly, and to know that we are alive. Created in the image of God, our Creator God wants to meet with us, to bring us into greater freedom, to bring us to places where we can be still and know that He is God. As with all things worthwhile, there's a practice and a rhythm to this meeting. Transformation takes time, it takes effort, it is work, but the most enjoyable type of work. The practices of our spiritual life anchor us and carry us forward. They center us as we navigate the storms of life. When we journey into the great expanse of God's love for us, we are transformed by the rhythms of His grace. Well, good morning, C4. Just glad that you're, so, uh, you're here this morning on this, well, not-so-summer weekend, but we're glad you're here. Anyways, want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online. As Joanna just prayed and said, that welcome to week six in our summer series on spiritual practices. This whole summer, we as a community have been learning about the spiritual practices. Why? Because we've begun to understand that Jesus is not just the Savior of us who have said yes to him. He is not only Lord, that is, that he is God and also our willing king and master, but he also came to demonstrate what it looks like to walk with God. He also is our model. And so if we want to become, as our mission statement says, fully devoted followers of Jesus, then we must practice the same practices Jesus himself walked in. We've been learning over the last few years a lot of critical things as we're preparing for our God-given future. And one of the most significant things that has revolutionized sort of the existence of this church is this. If spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to serve, that is, they are God-given activities with guaranteed power to further the kingdom of God, then spiritual practices are the other side of the coin. They are the guaranteed places of encountering God, meeting God. They are the vehicles to walk with God after we have met God through Jesus alone. One of the critical definitions that we've chosen to use all summer, written by another, goes like this. The disciplines, that is the practices, allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Like the video that was produced here just said, like I preached two weeks ago, that word transform is the goal, is the heartbeat, is the emphasis of why we are spending a whole summer challenging our whole community to become fully devoted followers of Jesus through doing the spiritual practices. Have you looked up that word transformation? 
It means alteration, change, revolution, renovation, makeover, and conversion. See, when you make the willing decision as a follower of Jesus to start practicing the practices he did, you are saying to the God of heaven and earth, I desire rest, and I desire freedom, and I desire to be conformed to someone who is not me. I want to look more like Christ. And so as I practice these things, I am saying, O God of heaven and earth, you You alter me. You change me. You cause revolution in me. You renovate the very essence of who I am. You do a makeover, not just outside, but inside. And though I am converted, no, I am asking Jesus, you to convert my thinking, my mind, my experience. I am asking for the kingdom of God to be found in me. That is why these practices are so freeing, so beautiful, so terrifying. Week one, we quoted Dallas Willard who said so long ago now, my central claim is that we become like Christ by doing one thing, following him in his overall style of the life he chose himself. And he says, well, what activities did Jesus himself practice? Well, solitude, silence, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, intensive study, meditation on God's word, God's ways, and serving others. And the verse we chose for this whole series is found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said to his generation and all the generations that have come since, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we've talked so many times over the last few years out of this passage, Jesus does not come to us this morning or in any church or any generation and say, I will remove all yokes. He says, no, no, I'm asking you to come and encounter me and I will place my yoke on you and I will replace other yokes. Why do we want the yoke of Jesus as Christians? Why do we have this image? See, a yoke again is put over an animal to direct them as they plow a field. Why do we want to be yoked to Jesus? Why do we want to be willing slaves to Jesus? Because he says, and he rightly proved it, that he is humble all the time, and he's gentle all the time, and he's perfect all the time, and none of us sitting here today are always humble, always gentle, and always perfect. If you think you are, just Sharon, not not true. And so since that is true, we want him to lead our life because he does it right all the time. He's the best master any human being could have on earth. Amen? And so... The reason why we ask for the yoke of Christ is because weirdly as it sounds, with being a slave to Jesus, with putting on his yoke, there is freedom. And the yoke is partly made up with these practices. And so this is an invitation for freedom. We've looked at confession We've looked at prayer over two weeks in two forms, and we've seen that prayer goes up, inward, and outward. We've looked at simplicity. We, we, when we were all together with all the kids, we had a conversation about worship. But today we're going to look at another critical spiritual practice, again, for normal, everyday people. And this discipline, this practice, goes hand in hand with the act of prayer we spent the last two weeks talking about. We're going to learn and be invited together as a family into the practice of fasting. Now let me be very clear right up front what biblical fasting is not. This is not talking about hunger strikes. 
This is not about politics. This is not using food as a weapon to further an agenda or the lack of it. Nor is this about weight loss. Our culture, and we all know this, has so much stuff and so much food that the weight loss industry is worth billions. And I just want to say right up front, this is not like Jenny Craig for Jesus. This is not Weight Watchers for the Trinity. Now, those two organizations are very good. Let me reassure it. They're great. But that is not what we're talking about. See, some of us are going to be seduced. I've been one of them into thinking, well, if I fast, it's a two-for-one special. I get to pray, please God, and lose weight. Awesome. No. That is not what fasting, in a biblical sense, is about. Now, as I looked at many authors and read on the subject, there were two definitions that stood out to me. And I want to share them with you this morning. And for all of you watching online, just pull out something so you can take a note. Because these two, I think, encompass the biblical worldview of fasting and the great freedom and power that come from it. The first one is a broad summary statement. The second one is more in-depth. Here's how one person wrote. They said, look, fasting is the voluntary abstention from an otherwise normal function, most often eating, for the sake of intense spiritual activity. They say, so you give up something, most likely eating, but you do it for a purpose. And the purpose is intense spiritual activity. See, fasting sets the environment to walk with God. Fasting sets the stage for us to engage in other spiritual practices. As we're going to see, fasting is connected to prayer, confession, solitude, silence, just to name a few. But as I was reading, I was in a conversation up north at Muskoka Woods, and a friend of mine referred to a book I had owned but not fully read, and he said, go reread it. Those, go, go read those sections. And he, he said, there's something significant I think, John, you've missed in your view of fasting. It's a guy named Scott McKnight who wrote a book called Fasting, and I love his definition. He said, look, fasting is a response to a grievous, sacred moment. Catch this. And contact with God, the sacred, ought to transform us. See, there's that word transform again. The rule to follow is a simple one. Fasting, like all the spiritual disciplines, is designed to develop love for God and love for others. If it is not doing that, something is wrong. See, what really struck me, what really took me back is this. Some fasting is proactive. That is, sometimes fasting happens before something. But almost all fasting, when you read the scriptures carefully, is reactive in the sense it is happening during an event or at the end of an event. If you read your Bible, fasting was a spiritual practice done by people themselves and most likely and usually in community. But like I just said, fasting in most cases was done in response to a huge event. Good, godly, terrible, tragic. Almost all fasting is reactive. It's responsive to God. See, most times when you think about fasting, especially if you've grown up in the church, it's to get something. It's to do something before the thing. But when you actually read the scriptures, the event that you're responding to has happened or is already on the move. And this is significant because many of us have not understood that when there are significant, grievous, sacred moments, this is how we're called to respond. Now, yes, some fasts were proactive. Some fasting was done normally. 
In the Jewish religious calendar, believe it or not, there was only one regular significant fast that took part in the yearly calendar of the Jews. It was connected to the Day of Atonement, where the whole nation would gather and deal with sin, and there would be a fast. After the second exile, yes, there were a few more day fasts here and there, but this is the most regular one. Yet here's the point this morning as we get going. Year after year, as the act of fasting was done by the people of God, quietly, slowly, for a thousand different reasons, in the heart of many people, the reason why they started to fast began to shift. The fast looked right, was practiced right, but the motive changed. See, these so-called sacred events were calling the people of God to come before God to deal with key issues or to repent of sin or intercede for God to move in a new way. And yet, here's what happened. Slowly it moved from worship to self-promotion. People would begin to show that they were fasting really seriously. They'd be unkept, no deodorant, unwashed, sprinkle ash over themselves. And here is the point. Are all those activities wrong? No. In fasting, that's fine. But see, their motive, as we're about to see, their goal was this. They wanted people to react to them. Fasting became the religious Instagram moment of their day, and they wanted to draw attention to themselves. And though God was being invoked and prayers were being said, God was nowhere to be found anymore because fasting was about self-promotion and many likes on the religious calendar. It's into this that Jesus begins to speak because the heart of people was, look at me, look, I'm fasting Look how more dedicated I am than you. Look, I'm pleasing God more than you are. Look how much I'm suffering for God. You're so weak in your faith. You're so second class. Don't you know? I'm only drinking water and you're still drinking coffee. Oh, I suffer so much more for Jesus. You still are so weak that you're, you know, only getting, you're eating lima beans and not steak. But me, I haven't had water or food for two days. Don't you know how much God likes me more than you? God, when his radar is going across the earth, he sees me quicker than you. Because look at how much I'm giving up for God. Jesus in Matthew 6, that's where we'll be mostly today, speaks into this. And Jesus in Matthew 6.16 begins as he's just given us the great prayer, begins to talk to us about heart and fasting. He says in Matthew 6.16, when you fast. Can we just stop for a moment, everyone look up? Does it say if or when? Loud. If or when? When. When you fast. So Jesus expects his church to fast. Fasting is part of what we do as Christians. So let's be honest. Many, many, many of us sitting in this audience this morning and online, we have never fasted. Some of us have been Christians for 10, 20, and 30 years, and we have never truly participated in a fast. And yet Jesus says not if you fast, but when you fast. We're called into the spiritual practice of fasting. It is part of the normal Christian life. And yet, when you begin, or if you do do it, we now need to stop right at the beginning and ask, why are you doing this act? Let me keep reading. When you fast, Jesus says, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show people they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now, just whoa. This is such a significant point. This is like an epicenter moment for the whole series at this moment. Jesus says, they have already received their reward in what? Say it loud. Full. This this causes me great fear. Let that sit this morning just for a moment before we get to the joy of fasting. Let that heaven-given statement hover over this audience this morning. Let it get very close to your heart. Ask the question you don't want to ask, but you need to ask, because if you're willing to ask this, real transformation may happen for you. When you fast, let me fill in the blank. When you serve, when you give money to God, when you pray, when you preach, when you lead worship, when you play an instrument, when you pray for healing, when you cast out demons, when you do anything for God, listen closely. Why did you do it in that moment? Did you do it so you'd feel better about yourself? Did you do it so people would respect you more in the community? Did you do it so you would be liked? Did you do it so people would follow you? Did you do that thing in God's name out of duty? Did you do it to deal with your insecurities? See what I'm doing for God, everyone? See how tough it is? How much I am doing? See how I'm marked? See, right then, right then, even if you don't utter it out loud, but it's your heart. Let's say you're in the audience and we're congregationally singing. You're singing really loud, but you're really singing and looking to see if people are watching you sing. At that very moment, Jesus says, your reward has been given to you right there. You got what you wanted. You wanted people's looks, you got it. You wanted people's respect, you may get it. Approval, self-gratification, you got elevation in the community. You got what you wanted, that look, that love, that security, that identity boost. But it will have no eternal reward at all. You decided, we decided that we thought the bank account down here was better than the bank account up there. And Jesus says at that moment, at that moment, everything that had value was lost. See, the act of fasting, all godly practices can look right and even be practiced right and said right. But if your motive is not for the glory of God and the coming of the kingdom, then it is gone. One of the scariest verses on fasting in the Bible is found in Zechariah 7.5. This is what God says. Ask the people of the land and the priests. So ask the people and their leaders. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past, oh my goodness, 70 years. Was it really for me that you were fasting? For 70 years, the people of God in exile fasted. And God comes at the end and said, was it even for me? At the end of time, everything that we have done will be tested by Jesus. We will all face God. By the way, this is not a salvation issue. There are two judgments. One is for Christians and one is not for Christians. But we who are Christians, everything we have done for the kingdom of God will be tested. 
And we will find out what we truly did for him, what we did for ourselves, and what we did for others. This is how Paul articulates that moment that every one of us, just let me say this again with strength, every single person in this room who's a Christian will face Jesus personally and we will give an account about everything we did in his name. 1 Corinthians 3.12, if any man builds the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, his work, her work, will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, we receive reward. If it's burned up, we suffer loss. Notice, he or she will be saved. This is not talking about getting into heaven, but only as one escaping through the flames. This is how I imagine this will go with me. I'm going to face Jesus And whole sermons I have preached will burn up in front of my eyes. Other sermons, whole lines will be burned away because I used it for politics or self-promotion. Prayer times I've had with some of you will be gone. Because I did them for the name of John, not the name of Jesus. Everything we do will be tested by fire. And only what was done for the glory of God is going to be given and rewarded. Everything else, we spend so much time trying to make sure that people like us and dealing with our insecurities. And we do it using God's name in vain all the time. And God goes, it's going to be gone. You've already got your reward. They Instagrammed, liked you. But on heaven, Instagram isn't going to matter. No comment, no encouragement, no, whoa, John, what, ooh, really, no, gone. There's only one judge, one voice that matter, and his name is Jesus. No one else. So as we enter in, Jesus says, don't be somber like the hypocrites. Don't act. But when you fast, let me help you out, he says. Verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. This is the ancient way of saying, just keep it real. Ladies, put your makeup on. Put your pants on the way you always do, boys. It's going to be okay. Wash yourself. Put deodorant on. Get, wash your face. Just go out. Do your normal job. Do your normal life. And oh, by the way, you get to fast while you do normal life. Why? Because I don't want any person in this room or anyone online to lose eternal reward and I don't want you to set yourself up to sin. Verse 18, so that it will not be obvious to men or women that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Others will not know. And what's so beautiful about that is you don't even get to keep a bank account of secret pride that you get to bring up later. God, who is all-knowing, will see what you truly do, and he will reward you. And let me say again, what God rewards in eternity is way better than anything we get down here, because this stuff all goes away. Now, as Jesus is talking, we almost stumble onto another spiritual practice that's connected not only to fasting and prayer, but all the disciplines. It's what theologians call the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Here's how one person wrote it. Secrecy as a Christian is the conscious refraining from having our good deeds and qualities generally known, which in turn rightly disciplines our longing for recognition. How anti-cultural is that, everyone? Like, is this not the most anti-cultural thing you could do? 
Don't look at me. It's, okay. it's like, now there's two ways you can do this because this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Number one, you can do this as long as you don't lie or commit deceit. Much of the time when I'm fasting, my kids will ask me, so I'm making dinner, but I don't eat dinner. And my kids go, don't you like what mom made? Uh-oh, trouble, right? And I go, no, no, I'll tell them I'm fasting. Now, I'm not saying this, oh, behold, children, behold your godly father, your spiritual father. Who, no, no, no. So I'm not going to lie to them. I can't tell you why I'm not eating. Like, no. Sorry, Hannah, I'm, I'm fasting. Well, daddy, what's fasting? Well, let me tell you what fasting is. It's done in right motive. So you, the goal is to do these things without lying or deceit. And here's the amazing thing. This idea of secrecy is this, that our God's voice is more intoxicating. Our God's voice is more luring than any other opinion of anyone else. The self-addiction we have to the opinions of others is killed by this discipline. Dallas Willard wrote, the desperate attempt for many people to advertise themselves is nothing less than unbelief because it reveals that they need the attention of other people and God is not needed. Jesus did say that we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and so we can't hide when we do things for God. It's not like you can walk around here serving in secret. No. But this is what I love. Secrecy rightly, rightly practiced enables us, I love this, to place the public relations department of our life in God's hands. He will lift some up and not others, and that's his choice, not ours. This isn't saying you can't ever do a public fast. 16 New Testament references, almost half of them, if not more, are done in public. Almost every Old Testament fast is done in public and community. The question is, why are you doing this? Are we called to fast? Yes, we are. Are we called into the biblical, biblical practice of secrecy? Yes, we are. So you go, okay, John, I, I get we should fast and why we should fast, but here's the question that's now coming to me. Well, when do we fast? Well, I found six reasons when we fast. There are six reasons. So let me just go through them. The first one is this. Fasting and prayer is connected when you're facing important decisions especially in a church context where we're seeking the Lord on a significant thing. Fasting and praying is this. We see this in Luke, uh, Acts 13 too. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit sent, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And by the way, in Acts 13, that's the beginning of the great expansion of Christianity into the whole Roman Empire. And it started, by the way, in a prayer meeting while people were fasting. Do you see the power? Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas started appointing elders for each church and praying and, well, praying and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they'd put their trust. Fasting happens when you are going to face a significant decision or even that you're just worshiping the Lord and you're inviting his presence. That's the first one. Fasting, second of all, happens in response to crisis. The story of Esther is one of horrific holocaust. Esther is married to this king. They are in exile. And what happens? One guy hates the Jews and sets up a system to eradicate them, very similar to what the Nazis did do uh, many years ago. And so Esther is married to the king. No one knows she's a Jewess. And this is what happens in response to coming crisis. It's already in progress. Esther 4.15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I die, I die. Fasting is the natural response to crisis. We in our culture say the natural response to crisis is eating. But for we who are God followers, the natural response to crisis is a fast. Here's the third thing. Fasting is a very natural response when sin is deeply exposed in a community or in you. When God's spirit comes unbelievably close and reveals sin and we know because we heard it a few weeks ago that he will forgive us, yes. But let me just declare this. Fasting is a natural response when God comes close and reveals dark things in our heart. The story of Jonah in encapsulates this so well. Jonah 3.3, 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed. All of them from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth. He sat down in ash. And this is what he proclaimed. And you can read it there. It says in verse 8 or verse 9, well, at verse 8 it says, he says, while we're fasting, ever and urgently call upon God. Give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion and turn his fierce anger so we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented. Now notice, God did not relent because of their fast. He relented because they repented of their evil ways. But the point is the natural reaction to a fast, to a crisis, and also to sin exposure is fasting. It's so countercultural, but so significant. The next one is this. Fasting and prayer is connected to spiritual warfare and spiritual breakthroughs. Lori preached it last week in Daniel 10. It says this, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. A message was true and concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks, it says, and I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotion until the end of the three weeks were over. And then it says in verse 5, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen and a belt of fine gold around his weight. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleaming of burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of the multitude. In other words, this is not a human person. And this angel comes, verse 12, and says to Daniel, don't be afraid. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have, I've been sent to respond to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom has resisted me for 21 days and then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me. Here's the point. Daniel was fasting and praying and as he was fasting and praying, a great war in the heavens was taking place and as this angel was sent to give the response, the prince of Persia, an unholy angel, a demon, stopped him. A battle for 21 days he finally makes it through because Michael, the archangel, shows up and he says, just so you know, we're with you. God has heard you. Keep going. We're going to be great. I got to go back. Keep praying. What happens down here affects up there. And what happens up there affects down here. Do you believe it? See, fasting and praying is connected to spiritual breakthroughs. Never miss the power of the, the truth and the power of what we see in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, when he was baptized by water and by fire, the very next thing that happens in the Lucan account is this. Luke 4.1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and at the end of it he was hungry. You betcha he was. But at the end of that temptation, it says that the devil left him. Here's the point. This is the first time that the prince of the world faces off against the prince of peace. Most people talk about the defeat of Satan at the cross, but they need to start not at the cross. They need to start at the temptation. This is where his power was first broken. And after this, Jesus starts doing deliverances. Fasting and prayer is central to spiritual breakthroughs. We are praying for renewal, revival, and awakening in this church, right? We're praying that every Christian, no matter their background, has a deep love encounter with Jesus in a way they have not had in days, months, and years. We are asking God. We are not letting go of God, and we are requesting that he would sovereignly send his spirit on this whole church, and all of us would have a heightened sense of his glory. We'd want the lordship of Jesus, that worship would explode, that communion would be run to, that the Bible would not be duty, but a love book that we want, that we boldly proclaim the gospel that this church would be filled with holiness, that sin would be repented of, that secrets would be exposed, that marriages would be brought back to life. If you want that, you gotta fast and pray. If you wanna see an awakening in a region where hundreds of thousands of people who don't know Jesus, don't want Jesus, aren't interested in Jesus, or think he, they know him and they don't, If you want to see them come en masse, not tens or twenties, but hundreds or thousands, at least we have to humble ourselves and begin to say, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, how long? You've given us a promise. Come and bring awakening. But it's connected to fasting and praying. Fasting is also a natural act when we actually encounter God beyond the natural rhythms of life. Every once in a while, God in his sovereignty decides to come close to us. He moves from omnipresence to palpable presence. It's what you see in the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John walking with Jesus, and then they saw him in glory. As again, Scott McKnight said, fasting is a person's whole body response to life's sacred sacred moments. Do you remember when Saul met Jesus for the first time in Acts 9? Saul, who was our enemy. Saul, who was at the killing of the first Christian, Saul who was hunting down people just like you, kicking down doors. And it says that he was on his way to Damascus. And in Acts 9, it says, as he was on his way to Damascus, a great light shone around him. Shone around him. And it says in verse 4, he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? Well, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Verse 9. For three days Paul was blind or Saul was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. When God comes very, very close to an individual and it's like the heavens are peeled back, the natural body reaction of a believer or one who's just met him is fasting. The opposite side of it is true too. When God sovereignly does not draw near, but we desperately want to break into the palpable presence of God, fasting also is significant. I love John Piper's simple, raw, and exposing thought on this. One of the best quotes I've ever read on fasting. He said, half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because of our homesickness for God is so intense. Some of you, very few of you, are so homesick for Jesus. 
You so want him more than family. You so want him more than a house. You so want him more than anything else. You're so homesick because you know that you know that you know that he is purpose. That you must fast to get close to him. And yet, the opposite side of the quote is most of us. But the other half is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. Okay, John, you say lots to think about this week. Why we fast, when we fast, if, but could you tell me what it looks like? I mean, I'm not sure. Well, Richard Foster in his book Celebration of Discipline did a great job and he broke it simply down to three things. He said there are absolute fasts, normal fasts, and partial fasts. It's really good, simple, it's helpful. And if you want to participate, if and when, here's what he says to do. He says a normal fast is when you choose for a meal or a week or whatever just to drink water and you give up food. That's what a normal fast is. That's what Jesus did in the 40 days. So a normal fast, according to Scripture, is uh, nothing but water. So no lattes, no coffee, right? Just water. A partial fast is when you abbreviate your diet. So you could say, well, I'm not going to have uh, uh, sort of hard food, but I, I, I'll still have a coffee. Or you could say, I'm going to just drink juices, uh, but nothing else. This is also where some of you give up social media or television or something that you love that is not inherently evil, but you limit yourself. That's a partial fast. An absolute fast is very dangerous. An absolute fast is when you do not eat or drink water. Now, every person I've read who said, if you do an absolute fast, number one, God should be the one who tells you to do it. The second thing is this, you should consult your doctor. The body can only survive without water and food for three days. That's why in all the instances we saw, it was only three days. The, the body overall can last 40 days without food with water. But let me say this, whether you choose a normal fast, an absolute fast, or a partial fast, start slow. Remember that many of us are babies in this, and you know, don't try running the fast, you know, the fasting marathon day one. Not wise. But learn. Be encouraged by it. Participate in it. Let me do two last things. Let me tell you what fasting is not going to do for you. And this is really important. Fasting doesn't help you manipulate God. Fasting doesn't make you more special to God. Lots of us who fast go, mm, I'm serious today, right? And we think that God up in heaven is looking down and going, oh, out of the millions of followers of Jesus who are suffering, oh, John and Ajax, mm. Wow, in your first class house, mm, you're fasting one meal. I'm, so, I'm just going to draw, I'm going to listen closer to you than your wife's prayer. What's that? Really? Really? Garbage. But we believe it. You don't manipulate the divine. We don't call him down. He comes when he wants. But fasting is a way that we give ourselves wholly to God, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's a way we present ourselves to God, and it clears the path for other disciplines. But don't ever think you get to play with God. He is not a toy. Here's the other thing fasting will never do for you. It will never save you. So many people still in this church believe, and this is why I keep preaching it, that you think that when you die, God is going to weigh your life like this. And if you have more good than bad, that he's going to like you and get in. No, no, we reject that. That is religion and moralism. The scriptures are clear. You are not saved by what you do. You're saved by who you trust in. Amen? 
We're saved by our trust in Jesus Christ. And so do not think that fasting and other disciplines gets you into God's good books. They are only given to those who already are Christians saved by grace alone. Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works. In other words, after you have become a Christian, after the wedding ring is on, spiritual practices like fasting keep the relationship healthy and alive. Here's a few things that will help you when you fast. As they come to an end, here they are. It was, again, Richard Foster who said, fasting will reveal the things that control you. Listen to this very carefully, please. This is significant. Much of the time when you fast, you will suddenly experience all sorts of emotions and you will see who you really are. Richard Foster talks about anger, for example, that you will become very angry very quickly when you fast. And and what he will say is, well, we'll justify it by saying, well, I'm really hungry. Of course I'm angry. And he'll go, oh, yeah. But actually, you were angry before that. But fasting is actually setting you up to see who you really are. See, if you really want transformation as a Christian, if you really want to know how to engage the spiritual practice of confession, fast for a few days and see where you actually go sideways. And then you will know where you really struggle, and then you can get healing. So many people don't want to fast because they don't want to face themselves. Why? Because when we are eating and consuming other things, we can cover our pain and our sin. Fasting forces the secrets forward. The other thing that Paul is very clear about is that we as a culture and all Christians must not be mastered by anything. Fasting is a reminder that we are not controlled by food or anything else. They may be good for us, but we will not be mastered by them. And in our culture, oh, how we need this. Just a few other thoughts that I want to give you as I end, and here it is. When I fast, much of the time what I will use, I will do is I will use the hunger pains as a signal to pray. It will be a signal every time I have a hunger pain, I'll pray about what I'm called to pray. It's a way to pray continuously by using the body saying, where is my food? And I say, you will wait. All right, so, right, that's a good thing. But fasting also, uh, remember, is this, and here's the summary. Fasting is a declaration that all that I am is for the kingdom of God. This is about resolution. Fasting is an outward outward declaration of, of an inward experience already. It's a declaration that we're slaves and we're good with it. Fasting is a thing that needs deeply to be recovered in our church. And as the worship team comes up and we prepare to respond, let me just end with these words. Fasting doesn't make you more spiritual. Fasting doesn't make you on God's radar more significant. But fasting is the natural response preemptively and in reaction to the great moments of life. Fasting clears the path for the other disciplines. And fasting teaches us who our real master is. I'm not going to have a big crescendo end here. I just want to say, friends, every great move of God that has been recorded in 2,000 years since the death of St. John and all great moves of God in the scriptures, almost every one of them is connecting to an act of fasting. If you want to see God do new things, if you want to become more like Jesus, if you desire to see his kingdom come in greater measure in you, your family, your your connect group, this church, then you have to start exploring the discipline of fasting. My last words are Jesus' words. Not if, when you fast. Church, let us be deeply countercultural by saying that we are slaves to Jesus. And we willingly fast to clear the room for God 
We willingly fast to respond to crisis. We willingly fast to come close. And we willingly fast when he comes close to us. Would you stand with me as we pray? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this moment. My prayer is that now fasting will mark this church in very quiet and very large ways, but fasting would grow more and more biblical fasting. Oh God, clear our secrets. Oh God, make our motives pure. And oh God, answer our prayers. Lord, as some of us are facing tragedy, lead us into fasting. As some of us are seeking you, lead us into fasting. As we wrestle for this region with you, help us to fast and pray. Help us to be selfless with what we love for the sake of greater spiritual activity that lasts. Guard, O God, the reward you want to give this church. And forgive us, O Jesus. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have made our spiritual activities more about us than you. We repent, we repent, and we ask for the Holy Spirit's conviction at any moment. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. We're going to respond with communion today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are most welcome to this table. The only conditions in Scripture, if you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take this because you've not embraced the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. But we always say if you want to meet him and say yes to his lordship, this is a great place to do it. If you are a Christian and you are struggling or doing well, you are welcome. If you are a Christian who is running from God, we ask you not to take this because Paul says you make mockery of the one, actually, who you're running from. But all are welcome. And as you take it, thank Jesus. And think about this. Thank Jesus that he fasted even from the glory of heaven to come get us. Have you thought about that? His life was a fast so we could know God. So let me pray for these elements and then you're welcome to come forward and take them. Lord Jesus for your death and resurrection. We thank you. Thank you for hope. Thank you that you broke bread and said, my body. You took a cup and said, my blood. And we know that there's hope now found in Jesus Christ. Meet us, Lord, at each table. Would you come close to each table and meet every one of us and be and do new things in us. We just ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen.